for the morning. Yes, Your Honor. The Honorable, the judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit is now in session. All persons having business before this honorable court are now drawn near and they shall be heard. God save the United States and this honorable court. Very well. Good morning. Uh, judge Loken is the presiding judge on this panel, but because he's participating only by audio, he asks that I preside at the session this morning. <clears throat> so welcome to both counsel. Thank you for appearing this way. And Madam Clerk, would you please call the case for argument? Case number 20-3126, the District of Minnesota, Angela Craig et al. versus Tyler Kistner. Very well. Mr. Riley, we'll hear from you first. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. I am Richard Riley on behalf of the appellant, Tyler Kistner, and I would like to reserve four minutes for rebuttal. You may, but the time will continue to elapse. You'll have to stop on your own if you wish to save time. I understand, Your Honor. Thank you. The state of Georgia is about to conduct two special elections for the U.S. Senate. Counsel, I wish you hadn't started with that because, but it will take us to the heart of the matter. The 17th Amendment elevates state law over federal law on vacancies, period, period, period. I could give you many examples, trust me. Article one of the Constitution does the opposite. It subordinates state law to the federal law on vacancies. Why doesn't the actual case you're starting, the two Senate seats you're talking about, actually help your opponent and prove his case? Well, I, I think, Your Honor, we're both in this case and what they're relying on in Georgia is the statutory authorization. State of, statute. Go ahead. Well, it's actually the federal statute to USC Section 8. And remember, Section 7 is... Uh, Congress taking authority for itself under its elections clause power. But in Section 8A, Congress is giving it back. It's an express authorization of authority. And I think it's undisputed among the parties here that if the uh, scenario qualifies under Section 8A, it's not going to be preempted by Section 7. So this is not a traditional preemption case in the sense that we're looking at a conflict between a state statute in Section 7, like in Foster against Love, but rather we're asking a question of statutory interpretation of whether the elements under Section 8A are satisfied. And those two elements are a vacancy, and the other factor is a failure to elect. And so I think I'll just start in with the vacancy factor, if I may. It is beyond dispute that by operation of Minnesota law and without a federal injunction, there will in, uh, inevitably be a vacancy come January in the second congressional seat. That's a point that plaintiffs not only concede, they emphasize. They actually go so far as to call it irreparable harm. And where we have, a, although we have something of a disagreement on that point, it underscores the agreement on the part of all parties that there will be a vacancy. The plaintiffs respond that there is no current vacancy, but this misreads the statutory text. It doesn't require that there be a vacancy 
at the time of the election at the time prescribed by law that phrase modifies the failure to elect element and it wouldn't make any sense to read the statute any other way because the failure to elect has to occur first and the vacancy has to occur second because of the causation standard that's right there in the statutory text and also because we're talking about the context of vacancy in office and of course the way that term limits work you would virtually never have a vacancy at the time of the failure to elect that would occur a few months down the road when the terms end and the new terms begin. That's the holding of the Busby decision. We think it's both binding and if not eminently persuasive on this point. And so the vacancy element doesn't seem to be particularly difficult in this case. The plaintiffs focus more fundamentally on the failure to elect element. But the phrase failure to elect necessarily depends on state election law because there is no federal election code. Counsel, that, in, in the Love case, the Supreme Court says they're not going to allow wordplay on what's a failure to elect. Why isn't this wordplay? Well, it said it's not going to allow wordplay in the context of preemption. I don't think the case addressed failure to elect under Section 8 directly, and it certainly wasn't part of its holding. But more fundamentally, to your point, Your Honor, what about, the, what about the footnote? I thought the footnote, that's what the footnote addressed. Well, what the footnote simply said on Section 8, I think you're referring to the footnote that referred to the legislative history, was that there was some legislative history indicating that a failure to elect would refer to majority vote requirements in states. Uh, but I would point to footnote 4 in the same decision and emphasize the narrowness of the holding in that decision, which uh, expressly said that uh, it wasn't going to rule out the possibility that states would use non-traditional mechanisms. And remember, that's as to Section 7. I think we're even further afield from that case when we're talking about Section 8A, which at best was addressed in dictum in that case. And I, I would especially emphasize that the only thing the court said about it was to note the legislative history. And of course, we know that the statutory analysis doesn't begin and end with the legislative history. It begins and ends with the text, if the text is clear. The text here is clear, and it's clear in pointing the court to independent principles of state law. It's not creativity. It's not wordplay. It's really the only thing that this phrase could possibly mean. And tellingly, the plaintiffs haven't really offered this court something else that it might mean. They really seem to read it out of the statute entirely. If what is the, uh, Mr. Riley, what is the limiting principle on your argument as to what a state may declare an exigent circumstance and cancel an election? The overarching limiting principle is in the public citizen case, which said a state can't manufacture a failure to elect in order to evade the default election day. And I think there are several factors that would all have to be satisfied for this court to conclude that Section 8A would be triggered. The most important one that I think will be dispositive in almost every case is that it's a generally applicable law. The state has to drink its own poison. If the state wants to declare a failure to elect in a congressional case, it has to be willing to apply the same standard to its state races. Recall that this statutory provision- Wait, wait, where's that anywhere? that they have to apply the same state. Most states have completely different systems uh, on filling vacancies for, oh, 
we won't go there. But but just just tell me where you get that. It has to be the same law. Not not for filling vacancy, your honors, for, but for declaring a failure to elect. When is the election a failure? Okay. And the point here, Minnesota Statute two oh four B thirteen says that a uh, election marred by the death of a major party candidate on the eve of an election is inconclusive. It needs to be redone. That's true for the state legislative races, all 201 of them that were on the ballot last week. It's true for the gubernatorial race, the attorney general, so on and so forth. And so right off the bat, because it's a generally applicable definition of failure to elect, that's right where it is in the statute, literally the meaning of the statute, failure to elect. So is that the only limiting principle? As long as there's a generally applicable rule, the state can cancel an election for whatever reason it deems appropriate? No, Your Honor. I think it's the most important one because it disincentivizes mischief, but the court could go beyond that, and I think it would be justified in looking at uh, other factors, including whether it's beyond the state's ability to produce. That was emphasized in the public citizen case. I think it would also have to be rare. We know that failures to elect are a rare occurrence, so if this is something that is likely to happen very often, I think a federal court would have uh, justification to step in. It would have to be election-related, related to the la election. And I think the court uh, well, might go ahead, Your Honor. Well, our rarity and related to an election, I've got those. Go ahead. Was there anything else? And not, and not intended to subvert the default election day. In other words, it really is a special election procedure, not a default election procedure, as was the case in Foster against Love. And you have all of that here. Minnesota is drinking its own poison. It will apply this rule no matter which uh, race is is marred by this failure. Counsel, it's, I know I just looked at the statute. It only says partisan offices. Does that change your argument that it only applies when the partisan's offices are at stake? No, Your Honor, because that's a broad swath of offices, and it's also not an unusual distinction that occurs in state election laws. Most states distinguish partisan offices from nonpartisan offices. And it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have a major party rule governing so in our circuit, in our circuit, there's a different rule for the Nebraska legislature than the Minnesota legislature, right? The, Nebraska's nonpartisan elected. Go ahead. The, the, the definition of failure to elect is going to mean different things in different yep. places. And that's not just true in this circuit. That's true right now across the nation. Today, Michigan is sending the winner of a Senate race with 49.8% of the vote to the Senate. Georgia is not. There is already a patchwork of laws defining a failure to elect. And I would emphasize, we're talking about the phrase failure to elect. We're not talking about a patchwork of different default election days. The standard of uniformity is in Section 7, but Section 8A in giving back to the states gives flexibility to the states. In literally the, the corridor, the main corridor of the sentence, it gives states the authority to set the times of special elections. It doesn't place a limit on that authority. And there's no reason why there would have to be a national standard of failure to elect. And our respectful submission is that it, it wouldn't even be a good idea. It's not something that's inherent in the phrase special uh, failure to elect. And I would just 
to give you an analogy, and if you were reading in a, a sports magazine and you saw the phrase failure to win, you would understand in the context of an athletic contest that that would incorporate and refer the reader to the rules of whatever game might be at issue. You win in cricket differently than you win in baseball. And I think we have a similar point here. There's really three important elements that, that, that demonstrate to this court why it should look to state law principles and not try to craft some type of a uniform national standard. The first, of course, is that we have a legal concept. It's inherently legal whether an election succeeds or whether it fails. The second is that there is not a uniform election code to tell us that answer. Congress has some election laws, but it was never contemplated that Congress would have the, the comprehensive set of election laws, and that's certainly not the Council, I think that's not true because doesn't it say Congress can change anything a state does about elections of the it, senators it, and reps? It does, Your Honor, but that's sort of a, um, in effect, a corrective measure. In the case of Rucho against Common Cause, the Supreme Court recently described this as the opportunity for Congress to come in and correct abuses. In Joseph Story's commentary on the Constitution, he opined that most law will remain state law because Congress is only... Uh, he, this is before this law was passed. All these laws were passed in 1875, right? Story was writing... Right. Thank that, you. Proceed. That's true, Your Honor, but I think his prediction has proved correct. The, the fact remains today, as it was when this law was enacted, and as was the case in Joseph Story's time, that most election law is state law, and certainly the rules of a failure to elect are state law. Finally, an overarching question in these types of cases is whether there's a need for national uniformity. There isn't such a need, and we see that there is not national uniformity playing out in this space right now. Well, wait, what do you mean there's not national uniformity? 99.99999 elections occur on one day. That's, That's true. national uh, uniformity, Council. That's true, and it's also true in Minnesota. Minnesota abides by the default election day for its elections. It intended to for the second congressional districts. This is an exceptionally rare occurrence. But, but I thought your position was the only limiting principle here is that it has to be generally applicable related to election. And you say it should be a bright line rule, but you say we should consider rarity. I'm not sure what rarity means, but under your view, as I understand it, all 50 states could have different reasons why they postpone or cancel elections based on different weather-related problems or different difficulties with the uh, um, election process, the health of candidates, uh, the efficiency of uh, the campaign, and so forth. Uh, why wouldn't that, is, am I correct, that's your, that's the <laughs> implication of your proposed rule? It is, Your Honor, and I think it's the only rule that would really make sense because there, the reasons for canceling an election are very idiosyncratic. I mean, we make the point about weather in our brief. Some weather events are disastrous in Miami, but not in Minnesota and vice versa. And so this, the term failure to elect doesn't create a national set of judicially manageable standards for identifying when this occurs, because that's really the alternative, is that courts... Yeah, why isn't the better, if there is going to be a bright line rule, then why isn't the better rule just to say no state may do 
this, that failure to elect has a meaning that's limited to flaws in determining the outcome on election day, tie votes, pluralities, and so forth. If that were true, Your Honor, then that would cut out the exigent circumstances in the case of a hurricane or another natural yeah. disaster. So require additional federal legislation in that case. Has that ever happened since 1874, where there's been an uh, election for the House postponed on account of there have there have been elections that have been that have been thrown out because of this. I'm not aware of one postponed in advance, but one could imagine it could happen. For example, in 9-11, New York postponed its elections. Now, they happened to be primaries that year, but nothing prevented uh, a terrorist attack from happening in September 2002 as opposed to 2001. And under the plaintiff's view, the, they would have had to go forward with elections to Congress in New York. And it would have been particularly perplexing because the state could have canceled all of its state and local elections, but still would have been required to go forward with its federal elections. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't think it's what Congress intended. And I see that I'm getting into my rebuttal time. So I will step aside if it pleases the court. Very well. You may reserve your balance for rebuttal. Mr. Elias, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, and may it please the court. Um, 423,000 Minnesotans voted in the second congressional district in Minnesota. In fact, there was no failure to elect. In fact, there was a successful election throughout the state of Minnesota and in that congressional district in particular. I want to jump to uh, what seems to be the nub of the court's questioning um, uh, at the outset. The fact is there are hurricanes in in Florida, and they don't cancel elections. The fact is that there was Superstorm Sandy that hit New Jersey and New York that was not prepared for it, and there was no cancellation of federal elections. There have been snowstorms and blizzards in Alaska, and they have never canceled a federal election. There have been devastating floods and tornadoes, and they have never postponed or canceled a federal election. The fact is that the only instance that, uh, that appellants can point to is a three-judge district court panel in, New in Washington, D.C., dealing with the very rare circumstance of a conflict between the Voting Rights Act, which was an act of Congress passed subsequent to the uniform election date, where the three-judge panel found that the election needed to be postponed by a few weeks so that Georgia would not hold racially discriminatory elections in violation of the 1965 law. That was, not, the, that was affirmed by the Supreme Court, right? It was summarily affirmed. Yeah. Which, right. So now, how much did the Supreme Court affirm of that case? I, the Supreme Court affirmed the, the, this court is to assume it affirmed only that which was essential to its holding, which its core holding, I believe that with it, the minimal core holding is that where you have two acts of Congress, an act of Congress in, in the 1870s and an act of Congress in the 1960s, the later act of Congress has to be harmonized, and that was the narrowest grounds upon which the, the Supreme Court could have affirmed that ruling. 
with respect to the um, uh, what is your position then mr. Elias on the natural disaster I was trying to pin that down in your brief you've said no state has ever postponed but are you saying that as a matter of law no state could postpone an election uh, on account of a hurricane or a terrorist attack or uh, other such uh, disaster one one might say go ahead one might imagine and it is not it is for purposes of these this case only an imagination that you could have such a cataclysmic event that that prevented voting essentially at all in a jurisdiction that you that you would have an, an a natural understanding that there was a failure to elect where you know voter participation rates were in the in the single digits because there simply was no access to voting. But that's not this case. That's not even close to this case. It would have to be single-digit voting. If there was a 12% turnout, then there would be no failure to elect? Then I would, I would postpone. I think at that point there would be a different case before this court or a court to determine whether the, the diminution of voting rights was so extreme that voters effectively had no ability to elect. But, Your Honor, I want to point to the fact that this court is no stranger, nor are its sister uh, courts of appeal strangers, to a myriad of cases that were brought this election cycle, citing COVID as a reason to change election laws. Could you imagine if the state of Minnesota had applied the standard that my good friend um, opposing counsel articulates and says, well, because of COVID, we are going to apply a generally applicable law, to use his terms, and simply say no elections in the state of Minnesota while COVID is still going on. That until the CDC certifies that COVID is under control, there will be no elect, no federal elections in the state of Minnesota. That would be completely implausible. In fact, it's so implausible that no one has our, no one even thought that that was a possibility, and brought it to any court. Yet that would meet the generally applicable principle that my able uh, friend and opposing counsel um, uh, 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 has articulated. Well, what is your rule then? If you don't like his rule, your rule is that the event has to be, how would you articulate your single-digit voting scenario to establish principle? So, again, I want to say, I start with the plain text of the statute and its original intent, which is that a... Uh, a that that uh, that there is a vacancy that is caused by a failure to elect at the time prescribed by law. That is a tie. That is a um, uh, a uh, a circumstance where essentially no election is able to be held. Um, I'm not. I don't think that this court needs to venture into whether it's single digits or double digits. Um, but it is certainly not the routine, unfortunate, but routine event of candidates passing away. Candidates pass away like all humans in, in not infrequent uh, times during elections. And the fact now, is that counsel, the staff... Counsel, this is Judge Loken. I don't understand why when a state, if a state statute enacted well before the election in question declares that any votes cast that day will not be counted, why that doesn't result on election day and a failure to elect? Under the, uh, Your Honor, I'm glad you asked that question because under that theory, every state could opt out of the uniform election day. 
by simply by simply passing a law in advance that says, for example, if more no, than well, 50... That's, that, that's, that's parading a, a, a horrible. That's not true. There, can, Honor, be, there I, can be constraints on, on that doctrine, including uh, a, a, a patent attempt to undermine Section 7. I think, Your Honor, that the that the um, that the the if a state delegated to a um, uh, to an election board, as for example in North Carolina is the case, the ability to treat um, exigent circumstances to include both natural disasters and epidemics or pandemics, you literally would have states declaring because of COVID there could be no presidential, no Senate and no House election during a pandemic. Under the standard applied by the plaintiff, there is no difference between a natural disaster that is of snow or a natural disaster that is of a virus. And that is simply not, that would simply unwind the, the fabric of the, of the system that Congress has put in place to require that all Americans, whether in sickness or in health, whether they like how, the candidates or not. How about death from a major party candidate? Or death of both major party candidates. I'm sorry, Your, Your Honor, I was unable to hear the beginning of the question. Well, what, a, what about the, uh, the, the state law that said in the case of, of a, the death of one or both major of the major party candidates that everyone recognizes as major parties, <laughs> um, why, isn't, why isn't that, you know, the, that, that doesn't result in a failure to elect? Your Honor, I th I'd answer that two ways. The first is that if you read the rest of the statute, the rest of Section 8A, it interestingly talks about death. It says a failure to elect at the time prescribed by law or by the death, resignation, or incapacity of, the, of a person elected. So the statute actually contemplates what's hap what happens if there is a death. If there is a death of the person elected, then, in fact, that does trigger 8A. But here, there was no death of the person elected. There was a death of a candidate. And if Congress... Know, we know that. We know that there was no death of a person elected. The question is whether it qualifies as a failure to elect. If, it, say, there's a bomb that goes off in the debate and the Republican and the Democrat are both killed and the only person on the ballot left is the marijuana party candidate, can the state declare that's a grounds to cancel and postpone the election. So I'll answer that again with, with, with two pieces. The first is that the statute does speak to, you have to read the statute as a whole, and it does seem to single out death of a elected, and, and I think that that should influence the way the court reads the, the failure to elect portion. But the second uh, point is that as this, major, as the, as this uh, court held in its unanimous decision uh, before, uh, 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 during the prior proceeding, this case doesn't involve a death of either the DFL or the Republican Party candidate. This involves the death, a tragic death, but the death of a candidate who in the end received 24,000 votes. Uh, so this, this court needn't answer the question of what would happen if you had either the the DFL or the uh, Republican Party candidate. That's a that's a question for another court on another day. I think it would. I think I think it might present a different but circumstance. Council, council, state law still declared. Don't you can't count the votes. 
and and a federal court decree is the only reason they were counted yes your honor and i do want to point out that the federal court decree has allowed them to be counted and those results have been well, but there's the, if the state law was was valid vis-a-vis sections under section seven and eight there was nonetheless a failure to elect a federal court can't trump a governing state law that way so uh, the, as of november 4th there was a failure to elect and as of january there will be a vacancy and now the federal constitution and state law uh, have all different kinds of, of mechanisms to deal with the, the the rare situation. Your Honor, I dare say if, if this court were to take the extraordinary step of canceling an election and and saying that a state could declare, declare a failure to elect on the death of a pro-marijuana candidate. You're not listening, counsel. You don't want to listen. I'm not saying this court would cancel the election. This court would say that under state governing state law, the election did not occur. If the court were to rule that this state law is applicable in these circumstances, then we will no longer have uniform election days because states around America will exert their power to opt out of that date by declaring emergencies based on weather. We're back to to parading the horribles. But, Your Honor, it's not a parade of horribles. It's a reality. There are, in fact, hurricanes in Florida every year, and no one has ever saw fit to go to a federal court and try to argue that the state could use its exigent authority, which it has, to alter election procedures and essentially cancel a federal election. When you say no one has ever seen fit to go to a federal court, has, has the state of Florida declared that the votes should not be certified on account of a hurricane? No, Your Honor, I don't think there's no reason to go to a federal court. Then I, I, I don't believe that the state of Florida or any other state other than Minnesota has ever attempted uh, to to do what what is at issue here. But certainly the state of Florida would be watching and the state of Florida that thought that that uh, where that power is vested in the governor and the secretary of state or in the state of North Carolina, where it's in the hands of a partisan election board. Um, to declare um, emergencies and to have plenary authority to change election rules, we will see those 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 bodies exercise that authority under a neutral principle that they that they have declared an exigency. In fact, the North Carolina uh, State Board of Election declared such exigencies uh, to extend absentee ballot deadlines, to extend uh, other provisions of state law. That has gone to the Supreme Court three times now. And uh, uh, we, we will assume that in the future, added to the arsenal of those boards of elections and election officials will now be the authority to say, you know what, we think that there is an exigency due to weather, an exigency due to COVID, an exigency due to something else, and we will cancel these elections and postpone them until a future date. And that will unravel the fabric that Congress has put in place, that we have a uniform election day for Congress so that all voters are voting at the same time on the same sets of issues under the same sets of conditions. Um, so it may sound like a parade of horribles, but the fact is Minnesota is not unique in, in um, facing unusual circumstances. States have been respectful of Congress's prerogative to, to abide by the uniform election date. And were this court to open the door and allow Minnesota to opt out of that for the first time, uh, uh, it, I, I fear what we what 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 will 
what will come after, which will be a series of judgments that courts will have to make about whether this circumstance is really exigent, whether this circumstance is really rare, uh, or whatnot. Um, so so, so you, do you disagree completely with the opinion we put out on the stay? I don't. I think that the opinion... Well, didn't we just do what you just described? I think what the court did, what the court did in the stay, which I think is the which I think is the proper and most prudent course at this point, is to say that in this case, in this case before it, it needn't decide a whole bunch of other circumstances that what ifs could ifs. In this circumstance, you had the death of a candidate that we now know got twenty four thousand votes was not in fact the candidate of choice. And therefore, we needn't address the question of what it would be if, a, uh, if in fact, a major party candidate passed away. I've speculated as to what, uh, or not speculated, I've, I've offered what I think the framework might look like there, but, but this court needn't decide that more difficult question. The question before it is quite simple, which is whether or not in this election, on these facts, uh, the, the election uh, uh, results uh, 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 should not be allowed to stand. Well, your counterpart says that's a bad approach because it gets into case-specific judgments about how much snow and how many, uh, how much electoral strength and so forth a particular candidate needs before the state can declare a failure to elect. Do you do you think we need a bright line rule? I, I think the problem, Your Honor, is that we oh, not the problem, Your Honor. We currently have a bright light rule. We we have a we have a rule that has governed this country well for 150 years, which is we have a uniform election deadline. It is the it is my my good friend's uh, revision of that rule to uh, to to say that any generally applicable law uh, could could allow for a failure to elect that would be a radical departure from from uh, from from the stability that we currently enjoy. Council, you agree every state could adopt runoffs uh, within within certain parameters? Yes. yes. Well, no, every state could adopt runoffs, don't you think? Under under the legislative history, the footnote in Love, and I won't tell you all the authority. Oh, every state can adopt runoffs, right? For for failure to reach fifty percent, correct? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So if Minnesota had been real slick, they would have called this a runoff some way, right? No, because the runoff involves the top two vote-getting candidates. Oh, no, 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 wait, wait. Where does it say anywhere runoff has to be between the top two? There, you, know, you, about, you know about weighted voting. We won't go there, but, but, but it doesn't have to involve just the top two. That's why I answered the question the way I did, Your Honor, is I, oh. think, that, that, I think that Foster uh, uh, and, and Miller only go so far as to, talk to, as to address a state's legitimate interest in wanting to make sure that there is a majority, a majoritarian rule in the um, in the in who gets seated, I don't believe that any federal court, uh, or I don't believe any state before we get to court, I don't believe any state has attempted to offer a a articulation of a of a governmental interest other than that, except in the state of 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 Mississippi, where the state adopted a quasi-electoral college rule, which right. a federal court cast doubt on. And in fact, this, I brought that lawsuit. And in fact, the Mississippi state constitution is being amended to change that as a result. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that, a, that outside of a runoff or top two to get so that someone gets 50%, a state would necessarily adopt a, a runoff.
as simply a redo of an election. Well, weighted voting is a redo of an election. And the district court up in, in, Maine, in Maine approved that. The First Circuit approved it. The Supreme Court didn't review it. Are you saying that weighted voting is or is not? What's your so, position there? So in Maine, the, the issue is ranked choice voting, which is that yeah, if uh, no candidate gets to 50%, you exclude those third-party candidates and essentially go to a top two by, letting, by, by having the people's second choice right. then adopt so, so it essentially but is that's not done the day of election council that's done later uh no it, it, it's vote all the voting is done on election day it is the math the, the okay. computers the computers take a few days okay. to do the calculation if they had faster computers in maine honestly so you'd allow ranked voting you'd allow ranked voting and you'd allow something that looks like a runoff right every state can do yes but ranked choice voting again is a run it's essentially instant runoff voting in other words people are saying who they would run vote for in the case that neither candidate got to 50%. Um, but there's no further voting that takes place in Maine. Yeah, it's a final runoff, but we, you and I don't need to quarrel about words. You have 37 seconds. Go ahead. Well, um, I, I do want to just point out that I do think that there would be, um, a, that, that Congress's purpose in, a, in requiring the Uniform Election Day would be implicated here, where the where allowing an election in February after the, the change in political um, circumstances, whatever they are, uh, the new president, new Congress, new uh, new Senate would undo Congress's interest in having all voters vote at the same time on the same set when the national in issues are the same. Thank you, Your Honor. Very well. Thank you, Mr. Elias. Mr. Riley, we'll hear from you in rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. This is not the first time this has happened. We only need to look back to 2018 where a congressional race in North Carolina's 9th District was thrown out after voting occurred. None of the votes ended up counting in that race, and it was redone 10 months later due to state law violations and the determination well, of the Well, let's state. go very slowly. So Congress didn't exercise its powers, right, over that election, because Congress had power of that election, right? It's, when the, same section, it's the same Section 7 power at issue here. There, Council, the ad address my question quickly. Don't dodge it. I'm the certain you know about yes. the five one. Go ahead. The answer is yes. Congress intervened in the same way it did here by setting Section 7's uniform election day. The state had to appeal to 8A to throw that election out and schedule a new one in September of 2019. The reason it did this was because of violations of North Carolina law. North Carolina has chosen to make illegal a practice known colloquially as ballot harvesting, which is not illegal. Yes, of course. State. Now, wait, wait. I don't understand because uh, you, you know the, there are several studies that show all the many contests that have been in the U.S. House. It says each house will be judge of the election to return to qualifications. Did Congress do anything on that election you're talking about? You know, they have a special committee usually to do that. I'm not. Did they or not? Tell me. I don't know anything about it. I don't think so, Your Honor. What, Thank you. What, I, what I'm aware of is that the state elections board, the same partisan board that Mr. Elias to threw it out on the basis that there were state law violations found under Mr. Elias's position. This never should have happened. It was all preempted. The state was required to send the top vote getter to Congress, notwithstanding serious allegations of state law violations that were ended up being found to undermine that election. Now, did he say that fraud would not be a basis to, uh, declare a failure to elect? I thought the brief said fraud would be allowed. 
I don't recall that in their brief, Your Honor, and I don't see how that would be consistent with their position, which I understand to be, uh, one, a 50% a rule wasn't satisfied, or two, something cataclysmic, like I, like I don't even really know exactly what they mean by that. Um, and, and I submit that that is a atextual view of the statute. Failure to elect doesn't just mean those two isolated things. I think it encompasses those, but it, by its plain terms, refers to something a little bit broader, which includes a case like fraud. And I think here it's not just fraud, it's a particular form of voting that North Carolina has made a policy choice against and other states have not. California doesn't determine that this form of vote gathering is unlawful, and that was what triggered the investigation. I think the stay stage ruling is problematic uh, for a different reason, which is that it would require a federal court to come in effectively after the fact and do its own determination under some type of federal standard. But the question here is really whether there is an effort to evade the default election day. And I would uh, echo Judge Loken's point that there really is no incentive to do that. The notion that there's going to be some kind of parade of horribles, I think, is quite fantastic given that under our reading of the rule, the state would have to live with its own poison. It has to be willing to uh, apply the same rules to all of its elections. It can't simply cancel the congressional election and not some other election. Finally, I do want to address the COVID cases, which are really under very different theories. The North Carolina case, which by the way, allowed changes in uh, the voting, but the theory there, the concern there wasn't about changing the election day predominantly. Well, but, but suppose the state just had a law that said in the case of a public health emergency, uh, the governor may postpone the election. If Minnesota... Under your, your view, as I understand it, that would be rare, generally applicable, related to an election, and permissible. If Minnesota did that, Your Honor, it would not have a government in St. Paul come January. Literally no legislative seats would be filled. There's absolutely no incentive to do that, and I see I'm running out of my time. Well, suppose they said we'll postpone it until December. Wouldn't it, that be permissible under the rule you're suggesting? I think the question would be whether it's evading the default election day, Your sure, Honor. It's evading the default rule, just like this statute evades the rule. I don't know what you mean by evade. <laughs> well, I think it's to, to change the default election day. If the state is willing to go through the hassle of all of that on a generally applicable basis due to pre-existing law, I, uh, I think that it would be permissible under our reading of the statute. All right, that's what I thought. Okay. Judge Loken, do you have anything further? Apparently no. no. Okay. Very well, then. We thank both counsel for your arguments. The case is submitted, and the court will file an, a decision in due course. Thank, thank you both you, for attending. That concludes the uh, session for the this morning, and the court will be in recess until further call of the docket.